KMTT Kimitzion Tetzay Torah. We'll be hosting Harav Yitzhak Blau, who will be giving a series on modern rabbinic thought. Last week we started looking at the thought of Yitzhak Hanar, and I'd like to continue one theme from last week before we move on to some added themes in his thought. We talked about Rafutner as a poet, and we looked at his use of Mishalim and his sensitivity to language. I think there's one letter that I did not mention that really conveys uh, the poetic nature of Rafutner's writing. In Rafutner's letters, uh, letter Kuf Aleph, Rafutner reminds a student about an event that happened during Cholomoy Sukkot, when the student and Rafutner were in the same sukkah, and the student was overwhelmed with emotion and was crying. And here, Rafutner uses poetic language in a few different ways. First of all, he talks about looking at this fellow, and instead of saying, I looked at you, he says, My look fell upon the face of that person. And you relate to this person in the way of a, a person has a relationship with themselves. I mean, using a Talmudic form and a Talmudic idiom to say that I looked at you. Instead of just saying, I looked at you. Again, I think this is a certain poetic quality one doesn't get in every achron. Then Rafutner goes on to play with imagery from Simchat Beit Shoeva. He says, just like with water, one could draw water from a, a pitcher, or from a river, or from a spring. So tears can come from different places. And this student was apparently crying from the spring of his soul. Again, a certain imagery. And then Rafutner finally plays with letters and says, at that point, the skin of your face, or panecha with an ayin, was converted to or panecha, light, the illumination of your face with an alaf. So we have a poetic form for referring to this person, Adam Karvil Atzmo, and the imagery of the, the water, the spring of the soul, combined with the, or, the, the plan words with or panecha. Okay, so this is the letter. However, at the end, in the second to last paragraph, of Hunter says something remarkable. Chaval chaval ma'od neged ritzoni limrod chefzi. It is a shame that against my will and desire... Uh, emerging from my hand was a letter that has a ring of literature. I wasn't trying for literature, for poetry. I wasn't trying to be pretty in my words. Right? I'd be happy if I could throw out the pretty shell of this letter and show you the inner core, the truth that emerges. And here, Rav Hunter almost seems trapped by his own poetic power, that Rav Hunter wants to not get caught up in stylistic issues, but rather to convey the truth and authenticity of the ideas. So here we see Rav Hunter himself struggling with his own poetic writing style. That's in terms of finishing up from last week. I'd like to move on so for some new themes. Uh, one theme that occasionally Rav Hunter has is kind of an interesting reversal, or a reversal of what people normally think. And we'll look at two examples of this. In Shvuot, Mamar Tet, in that volume, Rav Hunter describes, relates to a Gemara in Shabbat of Gimel, where the Gemara says, Kikai Rebbe Baha'i Masechta, Al Tishalei Masechta Achrita. Right, Rebbe's learning one Masechta, don't ask him about another Masechta. Now, the simple understanding of this principle is that he might be embarrassed, right? He might not know. I mean, this relates to a lack of ability on behalf of the Rebbe. 
that there would the Rebbe be totally in control of all the material. So even if he would be in one Masechet, you could ask him about a different tractate. But due to the limitations of the Rebbe, one cannot ask that question. Uh, Rav Hutner reverses it. Rav Hutner says this actually expresses the greatness of the Rebbe. And this is because he is so intensely involved in the Masechet he's doing that it's a problem to make him break away from that to some other topic. And Rav Hutner uses Midrashic imagery for this. He quotes a Gemara in Shabbos in Daf Pechet that says, at the time of the Aser had debut, Kol dibor v'dibor shiyatzami p'yakadosh prachu nitmali kol olam kulu b'shamayim. As if every one of the dibrot filled the whole world. And then uh, the question is, well, after that, have the dibor sheni come in? And uh, the Gemara explains how Hashem was able to move away the Diburishon and bring in the Dibur Sheni, right? The Diburishon filled the whole world, and Hashem had to, so to speak, remove it to allow the Dibur Sheni to emerge. And for Rav Hutner, our Talmud Torah is always Kinetinata. It's always like it was given at Sinai. There's always an attempt to recapture elements of that experience. And the filling of the whole world becomes an image of an intense experience, uh, a total concentration on the learning at hand. So for a funder, this is what learning Torah is all about. And it turns out that the reason why you don't ask a Rebbe about another Masechet is not because the Rebbe is not holding in the other Masechet. It's not a lack of ability. But rather, it's a praise for the intense concentration and the task at hand. Perhaps in even a more profound fashion, Rav has a reversal of this kind in Pesach, which could have great impact on our understanding of the entire de- endeavor of Domini. In Pesach Yudalid, Rav asks a very sharp question. Is a pasuk can tell him, that we say in Halal. And the Pasuk says, Ahavti ki Hashem et kol tachnun, koli tachnunai, ki etaz no li. <coughs> God, and at first we say, God heard my supplication, which Rav says, to hear his supplication, Yishma Hashem et koli tachnunai, is presumably to answer, right, to give what I asked. But then, ki etaz no li, because you inclined your ear to me. And Rav said, the order of the phrases here doesn't seem to make sense. Right, surely if one makes a request, so first the listener inclines his ear. First there is the Hatayat Ozen, and then you could fulfill the request. So the phrase, Ki Aznoli, should really be before Yishma Hashem et Kuli To explain this idea, Rav Hutner brings in a few other sources. There's a Gemara in Sota, in which Chazal comment on the phrase, which Hashem says to Moshe Benu on the Yam. And according to Chazal, Hashem is saying to Moshe, why are you having such a long tefillah? that I would like to save Am Yisrael already, and I can't save Am Yisrael until you finish your tefillah. That the, so to speak, Moshe's lengthy tefillah is getting in the way of the Yeshua. Now, why would that be? Shavonah so says, because, quotes one more midrash. There's a famous midrash that Hashem brings about, sometimes, Tzaraf Am Yisrael, so that they will daven. And he talks about a king who... A marshal of the, of the midrash, that a king arranges for bandits to cause trouble, so that the, the, the daughter will cry out, excuse me, not the daughter, so that a princess that he would like to marry will cry out, and he'll come to her rescue. So in these cases, it's not that the difficulty, the distress, brings about the prayer and the crying out, but rather the need for the prayer and the crying out brings about the difficulty. From that perspective, says Rav Hutner, we can understand what's happening with Moshe Rabbeinu. Right, if the tzara is for the sake of tefillah, then it makes sense. Would you say the opposite, that tefillah is for the sake of the tzara, to get out of it? So once Hashem is ready to answer, so there's no reason why Moshe's tefillah 
should go on, and Hashem should, say, should just save them. However, if the tzara is for the sake of the tefillah, so then while the tefillah is going on, the tzara needs to go on. I mean, this was the whole point. So Hashem needs to say to Moshe, you have to stop davening so that I could save Am Yisrael. Meaning the tzara brought about your, the tefillah, your tefillah, and this is its whole purpose, and until you stop, I won't be able to save the Jews. So this is Rav Huntner's idea in terms of Yitzhak Mitzrayim, in terms of that Gemara and Sota. Now Rav Huttner gets to the sharpest point here in, t- in terms of our understanding of tefillah. Rav Huttner says we normally think that the following is the causal relationship. We would like Hashem to be listening to our tefillah. Why would we like that? So that he'll do what we want. Right? We have certain requests, and we'd like Hashem to answer our requests. So if he's listening to our tefillah, he'll answer our requests. Rav Huttner says, but that's not it. The reality of tefillah is this closeness to the Rebona Shalom. We want him to be there. We want him to be listening to us. In fact, the causal relationship is just the opposite. We want him to do, fulfill a request because that will be a sign that he was listening. Quite the opposite of what everyone thinks. Here again, we have a friend with a sharp reversal of the standard conception. People think that you want Hashem to listen so that he'll do what you want. It's in fact the opposite. We want Hashem to do what we want, and this will be the sign that he's listening. From that perspective, of course, the Pasuk and Hillel makes a tremendous amount of sense. Right? I'm so in love with God. He listened. He fulfilled my request. The fact that he fulfilled my request, that's the sign that he was listening to me, which is really what it was all about to begin with. I think we're putting here is uh, embarking on a very important point in terms of tefillah. Right? Very often people talk about prayer, and it's as if the success of a tefillah is measured by whether it was successfully answered or not. That how do I know if I had a good request for Parnassah? Well, what was my Parnassah like the following year? But uh, it seems that this is a mistaken view of tefillah. And even if tefillah certainly has components of the desire to be answered positively, that is not its essential meaning and gradation of success. And this is something that emerges from the thought of many. Right? Rav, Hur- Rav Hirsch talks about tefillah as a way of judging yourself. Rav Salvechik talked about a tefillah, about achieving a greater need awareness understanding what's really important in life. And here we have Rav Huttner talking about tefillah as essentially creating this connection to, to God, a dialogue with Hashem, which of course fits into the essence of tefillah being omeid lefnei makom. That's what tefillah is really essentially about. And it's that experience that is really at the heart of tefillah, more than the question of whether Hashem has answered our tefillah in the way that we have requested. So here we have Rav Huttner on what I would call the ironic reversals or the surprising reversals and a particular conception of tefillah, according to Rav Huner. I'd like to focus on one more broader theme in Rav Huner, and then discuss a few individually important pieces in the Pachat Yitzchak. Rav Huner in Shavuot, in several places, develops the following idea, that often we have a clash between mitzvot. And sometimes one mitzvah beats out the other mitzvah, and this is normal, right? There's going to be clashing of positive values, positive things we'd like to do. And sometimes you have to put aside one for the other. Rav Hunner argues that this is not the case with regard to Talmud Torah. That with regard to Talmud Torah, even though we say mevatlim Talmud Torah for other mitzvot, when they are ef sharlasod right? If no one else can do a particular chesed, so then you interrupt your Torah to do the chesed. But Rav Hunner says there it's not truly an interruption of Talmud Torah, right? Since Talmud Torah is meant to be learned in order to do one aspect of learning is. At that point, when I interrupt my Talmud Torah to do another mitzvah, it's really adding a dimension, adding a layer to the Talmud Torah. It is fulfilling this aspect of Torah that will be almanat la'asot. 
So when I interrupt Talmud Torah to do another mitzvah, it's unlike other interruptions. It's not truly an interruption. It's truly a furthering of Talmud Torah. This is an idea that Rav Hunter says in several pieces in the Shavuot volume. It's in Hey and Yud Gimel and Mem. And just want to mention a few of the interesting uh, ways that Rav Hunter works this idea. Uh, there's a famous Tosvos in Brachot on Yud Alphamidbet. And Tosvos is curious, how come we only make Berkot Torah once a day? Right? If we make Berkot Torah and learn something in the morning, and then we go work in our uh, medical office or law firm or the like, and we stop, and we're going to learn again later in the day, surely we should make another bracha? Just like when we go in and out of a sukkah, we make multiple brachot. Just like if we would take our tefillin off and put them back on later in the day, we'd make another bracha. So why is it that with regard to Talmud Torah, we do not? So Tosva says, Shani Torah, Torah is different. You never despair of it. You never break your thinking connection, your consciousness of it. Because every moment a person is obligated to learn. But it's not exactly clear what Tosha's answer is. Even if one is obligated to learn all day, but one isn't really actively learning all day. But according to Rav Huttner's idea, we can understand. If one is engaged in other things, there's a furthering of the Talmud Torah. So indeed, there's never really a break in the Talmud Torah. It's, always, it's just adding the dimension of Lumod al-Manat Lasot. And at that point, there's no need for a second bracha because there hasn't been a half-sik. Rav Huttner also explains a line in the Rambam based on this. The Rambam in Hilchus Talmud Torah, Peregimel, mentions this halacha, that if the mitzvah is if somebody else could do it, so then you don't have to do it. But if it's such as, as I mentioned, a chesed which nobody else could do, or a mitzvah that's incumbent upon you as an individual, right? No one else could take lula for you, then you have to do it. So the Rambam says, so you should go do the mitzvah, and come back and learn. Now, it's not clear why the Rambam needs to add this. Right? Is it, the halacha just needs to tell you when you interrupt your learning when you don't. Does the Rambam, is he giving like a little musr at the end? The one has to return to one's learning after one has done the mitzvah. So Rav Hutner says that the achzor limudo is actually a crucial halachic point. Because if someone interrupts their Talmud Torah to do another mitzvah, there's two ways to understand what they've done. One can say that they are indeed fulfilling this ideal. They are adding the layer, adding the dimension of lumod al-manat la'asot, or one could say it's simply a lack of connection to Talmud Torah. And the test case will be how, what the person does when the mitzvah is over. Right? If the person's reaction after the mitzvah is to go waste one's time. So apparently the break in Talmud Torah was really simply that. It was a break. It was a lack of attachment to Talmud Torah. However, if one returns to the world of learning, one reveals that the break was really not a break or an interruption in the slightest. But rather, the break was adding this layer of Lumod al-Manat Lasot, and in fact, it was a furthering of Talmud Torah rather than a breaking of Talmud Torah. Rav Hunter also uses this to explain why Avaraba can serve as a backup bracha in place of Birkat Torah. Right? We know the halacha that if one didn't say Birkat Torah in the morning, sometimes one can use Avaraba as Birkat Torah without getting to the details of how this works. And Rav Hunter is curious, how could Avaraba be about Birkat Torah? After all, brachot are supposed to stick to the topic and not to bring in other things. Avaraba is not only about Talmud Torah, it's about fulfilling mitzvot in general. So Rav Hutner says, no, but in this context, mitzvot in general are part of the topic of Talmud Torah. Talmud Torah involves the very act of learning, and that learning leading to a greater fulfillment of mitzvot. Therefore, the totality of Avaraba is related to the endeavor of Talmud Torah, and that's why it could serve as a form of Birkat Torah. Rav Hutner says that this whole idea comes from a Gemara in Menachot. 
There's a Gemara Menachot about Moshe breaking the Luchot, where the Gemara uses the phrase, there's a Gemara Menachot Dav Tzaditet, Amresh Lakesh Pamim, sometimes, Shebitulo Zehu Kiyuma. Sometimes, negating the Torah is a fulfillment of it. And it quotes the Pasuk, Asher Shibarta, when Moshe breaks Luchot, Right? Hashem gives Yasher Koach for breaking the Torah. Rafatner says implicit in this phrase that the bitul of Torah is the fulfillment of Torah is the idea that it's not only that the negation serves a purpose. Right? Often one can serve a purpose by stopping something or by negating something, but that the negating is in itself the fulfillment. So here we are Rafatner addressing this idea that Talmud Torah is supposed to be Amnat Lasot and explains a whole host of issues. It emerges from the phrase "bitulu zel kiyumo." It explains why one only makes a bracha on Talmud Torah once a day. It explains the nature of the interruption that one does when one stops learning Torah to do it in the mitzvah. It explains why Avaraba could be a birkat haTorah despite its mention of other mitzvot. And it also explains why the Ram says "yachzer lulimudo." Right, that is the test to see whether your interruption was an interruption or a furthering of Talmud Torah. I'd like to now add three more themes in Rafutner, which are not related, but I think are all of great significance. Rafutner is a very powerful letter. It is letter Kuf Chavchet, where he talks to a student who is struggling. And the student seems to think that these struggles indicate that uh, he's not cut out for greatness. And Rafutner writes very powerfully. Rafutner says, Ra'ach olahi etzleinu, it's a sickness, a, a bad sickness among us, when we want to teach about the greatness of our, our great individuals, we only investigate, we only engage in the conclusion of their process, meaning we talk about their greatness, about their success. We don't talk about all the struggles, right? The mavak And we create the impression that our great individuals, our gedolim, came out in their full form. They came out perfect. And he even talks about the Chafetz Chaim. The Chafetz Chaim is certainly someone who in the traditional Jewish consciousness is viewed as a saintly figure par excellence. And in particular, of course, in his perfecting the battle against Lashon Hara, Rafatner says, Who knows all the battles and struggles and stumblings and fallings, and the retreats, that the Chavetz Chaim had in his war with the Yitzhahara. And there's a very powerful imagery here, and Rafutner is saying, the Chavetz Chaim also, right, presumably he struggled, and he talked Lashon Haran life on his battle, in his battling towards achieving the level that he achieved. And Rafutner points out the educational fallout of this kind of education, of course, is that anytime we have a student who struggles, the student thinks that they're not cut out for greatness, that this reveals that they're not really able to achieve anything. And of course, this is not the case, but rather the struggle itself is part of the growth. The Akrofutner actually makes reference to the English phrase, lose the battle and win the war. That it, and here, Rafunner says, it's not just that one loses the battle and wins the war, but rather the loss itself, the struggle, is part of the process of growth. And he refers to the Pasuk, Sheva Yipol Tzadik Vakam that the tzaddik falls seven times and he gets up. And here again, Rafutner has a reversal of the normal conception. 
the normal shot would be, even though, even though Shevi Poltzadek, even though he fails and falls seven times, nevertheless, to become. Rav Hunter says, no, that's not the way it goes. But rather, it is through the Shevi Yipoltzadik that he's come. The Kima would not be possible without the Shevi Yipoltzadik. And it's through struggle, it's through difficulties that one really grows as a human being and a religious individual. And certainly considering the nature of rabbinic biographies today, this is certainly a point that's very significant here. And Rav Hutner would presumably uh, be negative about them, that if the biography only focuses on the great deeds at the end of the life of a tzaddik, but there's no sense of struggle and even a sense of failure, one is really uh, promoting something that's educationally problematic. So this is an interesting letter, Rav Hutner. Rav Hutner also has a letter that perhaps relates to his entire endeavor. As I mentioned the other day, uh, the last year, even though Rav Hutner was certainly well qualified in the world of Lambdas, and the Svarim, such as Torah Tanazir, and his work on Rabbeinu Hill on the Sifra, certainly reveal someone with great knowledge in, in Shas and Postkim. At the same time, Rav Hutner's essential literary expression is the Pachad Yitzchak. And it sounds like Rav Hutner got a letter from a student who was wondering about the worthwhileness of this entire endeavor, of the Machshava and Agada endeavor. And we perhaps have all encountered students who a certain practical mindset or a certain practical orientation. You, if you give them uh, halachic guidelines about what they're supposed to do at a given moment, how to wash their hands, this is something they understand the value of. But if one has a broader question of Jewish thought, so then they struggle with understanding exactly why it's valuable. So Rav Hutner has a letter to such a tough student. This is in the Agrot letter Nundalad. And Rav Hutner quotes a pasuk in Dvarim Perket where it says, Lavat Hashem Lokechem Lelechet P'chad Rachav Ludav and the Sifri there says, If you want to recognize the one that spoke and the world came into being, you want to know God, so learn the Agadic portions of Torah. This will lead you to come to know God. And you will also come to cleave, to cling to his ways. So Rav learns from this Chazal as follows. He says that the revelation of Torah includes two systems. One is Gilui Tzivuya Yiparach, revealing the direct commands of God. And of course, Chakirat Inyanzem Halacha. Where does one investigate the explicit word of God, the command of God? This is the Halacha. Certainly, we are a religion that Halacha is central to. That's the Tzivu Hashem. However, says Rav there is a second aspect. There is Gilui Drachah There is the revelation of the ways and behavior of God. And that is through the Agadic portion of learning. And not only that, but Rav Hunter says, based in the Sifri, it is the search for the ways of God that actually leads to Dvekut, in somehow a more pronounced way than the Tzivuy Hashem. Right? The Medrash says, from learning the Haggadah, So Rav Hunter here, of course, is certainly not putting down halachic learning, but arguing there's a dimension that is more pronounced, that is, first of all, there's a dimension that can only come through Agada, the search for Darche Hashem, and it's a more pronounced way of achieving dvekut. And Rafuner points out that understanding many things that don't have practical ramifications are part of this coming close to God and understanding his ways. And the student had apparently asked about some amarim in the volume of Pachri Yitzhak and Hanukkah, where Rafuner discussed the status of the Bezdin the Hashmunaim, where the student thought this had nothing to do with Av and Yira. 
And Rav Futner says, Our main battles against this point, against this perspective that the student is taking. All the events and adventures of the Jewish collective, when they look through the spectacles of Torah, this is coming to understand the ways of God. So if one comes a deeper understanding of what the Bezdin and Hashem was, whether or not this leads to a particular practical ramification right now, one has come closer to understanding the ways of God and and to Dveikut. Again, I think this is also an important educational point here, where uh, often the, we do have students who are wondering about this, and according to Funner, one certainly cannot exhaust the value of Jewish texts and those that directly lead to immediate practice of one sort or another. But rather, a more mature understanding about who God is and how to come close to Him, this is an essential component of religious life, which, of course, on some level will end up having a spillover effect into the world of practice, but not in a direct way, not in an immediate way. And this is what learning the Agadah is all about. And Rav Hunter, in some sense, is even very uh, harsh on this Talmud, because Rav Hunter says, if someone learns this kind of material and doesn't feel any kind of connection to Kedusha, it is a clear sign that his soul is not a vessel ready for this kind of light of fear of God. And he should indeed constrict himself to uh, more clear details. Now again, this could be taken as a legitimate educational decision. that A student could say this is not for him. But one could also hear an element of critique in this and it involves a lack of vision, a lack of breath a lack of striving for Kedusha and not seeing this material as relevant to one's religious life. Okay, let us conclude with one last piece in Rav Hunter. We've now seen Rav Hunter's insight into how we portray rabbinic greatness, where there's a need for appreciating the failures and the struggles. We've seen Rav Hunter's insight into the crucial element of learning the Agadah Machshava, even though it doesn't necessarily lead to immediate realization in the concrete world of practice. I'd like to talk about one last aspect of Rav Hunter, which is Rav Hunter's approach to rabbinic zerot and rabbinic additions to Torah when they build fences to prevent Torah from being violated. And Rafutner starts out as follows. Rafutner points out that it's the nature of the soul, to be nature of the personality to be happy about achieving something, not about preventing damage. Right? It's achievement that makes us happy. Right? Sur meirah, something that's important, but doesn't tend to be the essential source of joy. With that background, Rafutner then asks the following question. There's a Gemara on the Pasuk in Shia Hashem, Kitovim Dodecha Miyayin, where the Gemara says, Arevim Divrei Sofrim Yoter Miyayinashal Torah, that the words of the rabbis are more sweet than the wine of Torah. And Rav Hutner says that if you look at Rabbeinu Yonah and Shari Chuva, this Gemara, excuse me, there's a Gemara in Erevin, uh, Rav Hutner actually quotes it here from Shir Shirim Rabbah, Although I believe it's in, ah, sorry, from Avodazara. Avodazara daf lamet heim aleph. And according to Ben Yonin, Shari Tshuva, Shari Shlishi, Odzayin, Rav Hutner says that, uh, excuse me, Rav Yonin says this relates to, to Siagim and Gzerot. And Rav Hutner points out, based on what I said before, it doesn't see why this would lead to the sweetness and to the enjoyment, right? Gzerot and Siagim and fences, they might, be, they might be important, but do they really lead to joy? I should just point out as an aside, if those of you are going to learn a footner inside, the sources don't appear in the Mamarim themselves, but in the back of the piece, in the back of the Sefer, in each Mamar, they explain where the sources are from. This is just something to take note of. But now we return to our question here. 
So how is it that this leads to the sweetness of Torah? So Rav Huttner explains as follows. Rav Huttner points out that when it comes to the mitzvah of Shmirat Migdash, of guarding the Migdash, so if one looks in the reasons for this mitzvah, there's two explanations. One, of course, is to prevent the wrong thing from happening, right? The wrong people should not come in. People who are Tameh should not enter the Migdash. But there's a second aspect of Shmirat Migdash. Right, this is an issue of honor, of dignity. Right, there's a difference between a palace with guards and a palace without guards. Right, if one thinks about Buckingham Palace, one does not think of guards as essentially keeping people out, but rather as adding a certain majesty to the proceedings. So here, Rafunner points out, you have something that can be a guarding, but a guarding can also turn into a form of honor. Referner points out one could say the same thing about clothing, right? Clothing and its essential purpose is to protect the human being from the elements. But again, clothing takes on an added dimension. It's become a badge of honor. A particular kind of clothing will convey certain things about the human, about the person wearing that clothing. Referner also relates this to Gemara and Erbin, where it says that Shlomo's Gzerot made the Torah, gave the Torah handles. First, the Torah was like a kfifash in Laznaim, a vessel without handles. Achiva Shlomo Vas and Rufender says this imagery also indicates a certain positive conception, right? That handles are not just to prevent it from being broken, but handles are enable you to do things with it, right? To enable you to accomplish something with it. And Rufender points out the obvious parallel here to the world of Gzerot the Rabbanan. Right? If one views the Torah as something very precious, and it's something very, very precious to when someone wants to give it kavod, wants to honor it. At this point, the honor that one is giving the Torah by making a siyag, it's not just a prevention of the negative, that Torah should not be violated, but rather it in itself is a positive expression of our love and dedication for Torah. Right? It's a kavod, it is a shmirat migdash, as in the guards of Buckingham Palace. If that is the kavod, if that's the expression of the gzerot rabbanan, indeed the gzerot rabbanan can be an asay tov, and not just a sormira. And I think this is also an important point for modernity. Right? We tend to view prohibitions as only something protective. The idea that a prohibition could generate something positive is something we're not so used to, but this is the truth, and, and this is true in many ways. Right? Certainly the prohibitions of Shabbos generate a positive atmosphere. For a footnote, Xerot it's particularly in expressing a certain reverence for the world of Torah. All right, with this, we'll stop uh, this week in a and uh, we'll move on to another rabbinic figure next week.